0: It's time we talked about it
1: Welcome to the 603 Stories Podcast, a monthly mental health podcast made by young adults for young adults, where we share stories, make connections, and find hope. Any ads throughout this podcast are not associated with 603 Stories or the 603 Stories Podcast. There will be sensitive subjects discussed during this podcast. Should you need them, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255 or you can text the CRISIS text line by texting 741-741.
2: Hello, my name is Heather Morris.
0: And I'm Jace Troy.
2: And this is 603 Stories.
0: Before we begin, we would like to just remind everyone that Heather and I are not mental health professionals. We are just two young adults who are passionate about mental wellness.
2: All right, and on this episode, we're going to be diving in to LGBTQ. LGBTQ um, topics for Pride Month. And we have um, our friend Jules Good here with us. Hello.
0: So Jules, let's start off by asking you a little bit about who you are and what you do, especially regarding the LGBT community and organizing.
3: Yeah, so hello, I'm Jules Good. I use they them pronouns. Um, I identify as a queer and non-binary person. Um, most of my, uh, I guess, reputation and organizing is actually in the disability justice world. Um, so I am a deaf and multiply disabled person. Um, but there is a lot of crossover between the disability world and the LGBTQ plus world. Um, and so I try to kind of have my fingers in both (laughs) at all times. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's just a a really great kind of crossover of community and I love being involved.
0: So what inspired you to get involved with advocacy in the first place?
3: So I, gosh, (laughs) so, uh, about halfway through college, I, um, Long story short, figured out that I was losing my hearing and went to an audiologist. And they were like, You're actually like 50% deaf. And I was like, Cool. And they were like, and you have a progressive hearing loss. And I was like, Double cool. Um, and then I developed um, some other happy, fun time chronic illness stuff. All of this to say that I quickly kind of had to realize that uh, the world is not super accessible a lot. And um, in order to change that, we have to do a lot of self-advocacy as disabled people, um, but also community advocacy. Um, And there's, you know, as a queer and non-binary person uh, also kind of doing that constant self-advocacy of having to explain that like, yes, they, them pronouns are real. And like, yes, don't call me a woman. all of that stuff. So I feel like it's um, kind of just a combination of my own personal experiences and also realizing along with that, that as a white person from a middle-class background, I'm also incredibly privileged. And so any issues that I'm facing are only magnified um, by people who are more multiply marginalized. Um, And so that's really what um, has inspired me to do this work to you know, advocate for my community in terms of the um, privileges that I don't have and to use the privileges I do have um, to help those who are in um, more difficult situations or additionally difficult situations.
2: Awesome, thank you. And could you explain a little bit, um, how did you actually get to the point of organizing?
3: Yeah. How did you
2: dive into that world?
3: Mm -hmm. That's a great question because I feel like a lot of people see organizers and they're just like, oh, they just like stood out on the street corner with a sign one day and then they were an organizer. Yes. And that's like not really (laughs) how it works. Um, So I would say my organizing air quotes um, is a, a, a little different than like traditional political organizing um, I do a lot of the same kind of like policy advocacy, like being you know super loud, showing up at protests and um, all of that stuff. But I also do a lot of behind the scenes work in terms of just helping um, organizations and people make their um, practices and processes and content more accessible and more inclusive. Um, and so it's a little little bit different than the kind of traditional organizing route. Um, But the way that I got here was actually, I was always really curious about accessibility um, and just knew that there was a real wealth of knowledge out there in the world um, from people's own lived experiences and expertise about what makes various situations accessible to various people. So I started kind of just like collecting that information in a spreadsheet and waited for an opportunity to use it. And then that opportunity came um, last summer when, um, we were starting to have a lot of BLM protests and rallies in the area, and I was noticing that a lot of them were not accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, wow, that's a bummer. Cause there's a lot of disabled people who really are passionate about this and want to get involved. Um, and so I started kind of using that information to throw together some trainings and, um, started training the, I think the first folks I trained were New Hampshire youth movement, who I like, owe so much to in terms of just like sharing knowledge and expertise with me. Um, And then started training the BLM chapters themselves. Um, And then through word of mouth, they liked what I was doing. And so I got connected to the ACLU of New Hampshire. And it's kind of just taken off from there. Um, So it kind of just started with this one idea of being like, we need to have accessibility in, in our social justice spaces. Um, and then it's just kind of continued going from there.
2: <laughs> now, is this something you do professionally or is it more of a passion project or what, so, what does that look like?
3: Yeah. So I have a business, um, called Neighborhood Access. We are an LLC, um, and we recently, not to get too technical but we recently um got fiscal sponsorship which basically means that we have a, a portion of our operations that act like a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, so we're kind of a fun little hybrid um so on the business side we do um consulting so we work at like an hourly rate sliding scale with organizations Um, to help them make their processes and practices more accessible. And Mm -hmm. then on the nonprofit side, we do a lot of um, advocacy policy work. I have my master's in public policy. um, So I'm a huge nerd about that stuff. Um, And so always kind of working on um, that the kind of advocacy side um, being a huge pain in the side to the House of Representatives throughout this legislative session um, and generally just being all up in everybody's inbox, telling them what they need to do um, in order to better serve the disabled and queer communities in our state.
0: So could we ask you a little bit about the policies that you've been working on recently?
3: Yeah. Oh, so
0: sorry. which house bills have you been involved with? <laughs> no worries.
3: I'm so sorry. I was like, yes. Um, so the. <laughs> That was hilarious. I'm so sorry. Um, so the main bill that I worked on um, was actually uh, HB 216, which was um, related to remote access. Um, and so essentially what has happened is there was a temporary order to allow remote access to house and other like kind of state level uh, committee meetings and such. And that was really great because it allowed people to testify from home on Zoom, which is not only great for folks who, you know, live far away and and maybe don't have the capacity to just like take off from work and drive to Concord whenever they want, or people who live way up north and it's snowing through the majority of the the session, it's not safe to drive here. Um, And it's also really helpful for, for folks with disabilities. A lot of us don't drive Um, A lot of people have have difficult situations related to transportation. Mm -hmm. Um, For myself, I have found remote access to be way more accessible um, because I can coordinate my own uh, either transcription um, for captioning or uh, dial in an interpreter to the sessions. whereas going in person and trying to coordinate that requires me to talk to like three different people who may or may not actually accommodate my request. Um, and so it's, it's been a really great option for folks, but unfortunately um, it was only a temporary thing because of COVID. And so this bill, HB 216 was meant to um, extend remote access indefinitely going forward so that it was always an option. Um, And unfortunately it did not pass. And now we're in a situation where there's a bunch of, um, there's a a pretty interesting legal battle going on with some disabled reps actually, um, who wanted, who needed remote access to the house sessions because it's unsafe for them to be in a room with 400 other people, 200 of them who Mm -hmm. may or may not believe that COVID exists. Um, And it, um, you know, it's It's just been really interesting to watch it all unfold. Um, So that's one kind of thing on more of the disability side. And then um, HB 544, um, the Divisive Concepts Bill, which we know has been kind of incorporated into the budget, unfortunately, which presents a whole other layer of complication, um, have been trying to do some work around that. Um, Interestingly, when the bill was originally introduced, it was, um, you know, only pertaining to what they call divisive concepts around um, race and sex and gender. Um, and so now that it's been incorporated into the budget, it's actually specifically mentioned um, that we're not supposed to talk about any forms of discrimination. So that includes ableism, um, you know, that includes all of the other isms. Um, So it's actually gotten worse as time has gone on and it's been incorporated into the budget. Um, And so I have um, worked a lot with New Hampshire youth movement and um, just kind of all of the other progressive orgs in the state trying to support any actions that they were doing, Um, wrote some letters to the editor, wrote some op-eds, just kind of trying to get the word out about how harmful um, this bill really is and how much important education it would take away um, from, from schools and from professional development programs. Um, because, you know, the way I see it, New Hampshire is such a, it is a small state with not a lot of diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and the diversity that we do have is dwindling because of bills like this. Um, And our government constantly talks about how much they would like more young people to move here and how they would like New Hampshire to become this sprawling, you know, business, uh, capital generating place. And that's not going to happen the more we continue to close people out with terrible policy like this. Uh, Can you give us
0: a little bit of history on the divisive concepts, Bill, and just kind of what that means? I'm sure some of our listeners aren't quite sure sure, or why it's important. Um,
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So essentially the, and let me just say, I'm not like a lawyer or anything. So, you know, beep, boop, beep, boop. I'm coming at this as like an individual. Um, But um, from what I studied and and know about the bill um, in the original bill, uh, it basically said that any uh, organization that receives any sort of funding from the state Um, or contracts with people who receive funding from the state which widens the pool even more Um, the biggest target of that really is schools public schools Um, and it prevents uh, teachers or um, guest speakers or really whoever from talking about what they call divisive concepts Um, and what they are calling divisive concepts is basically just acknowledging that racism and sexism exist uh, and have existed throughout our history, both in the United States and New Hampshire, Um, it prevents, uh, it it basically forces educators to block out a ton of our history um, because we don't, whoever, you know, the people behind this bill don't want to continue owning up to the fact that white supremacy has been a huge part of our history in New Hampshire. And that unfortunately it continues to be alive and well here. Um, and so that's kind of the main crux of it. Um, if you read the original text of the bill there's like a whole list of things that they consider divisive concepts um, but they are all related to um, you know, discussing the pervasiveness of sexism and racism uh, in, in New Hampshire and in the United States.
0: Okay, so Jules. How has being part of the LGBTQ plus community impacted the work that you do currently?
3: Yeah, so (laughs) I feel like part of being queer and disabled, but I'll focus on the queer part for now, is just being used to being a weirdo. Um, And (laughs) I think it's so important to embrace being a weirdo when you're doing, um, this type of like, what I hope is bold organizing, um, because you really have to be comfortable with sticking your neck out there, uh, and, and being willing to be wrong often and being willing to like make a fool of yourself. Um, and I think growing up, um, I grew up mostly in Arizona, um, in a really, really conservative area where it was not, Cool for anybody to be coming out. Um, and I didn't come out until college, really, um, when I had already moved. Um, but I just remember as a kid knowing that I was different and that I was, you know, thinking about gender and sexuality to whatever extent you do as a youth mm-hmm. um, in a way that was different from a lot of my peers. Um, and so it kind of got me used to, and, and also just being like neurodivergent and just being a, a strange person in general, um, got me really used to, um, you know, being comfortable with, with being kind of the odd one out. Um, and I think what makes our community so powerful is that we are a collection a united front of people who have been on the fringes their entire lives. And so we're all people who are used to in, in some capacity being brave or having to be okay with being different. And when we come together and share that braveness and that, um, you know, that just that sense that we are doing something different than everybody else. um, It, it makes us a lot more likely to embrace um, you know, these kind of progressive values and, um, and, and make a positive impact.
2: Sorry, I'm buffering. Um, <laughs> we love it. um, yeah, I just want to reflect really quick, um, on, you know, also gender non-conforming person who grew up, I mean, I grew up in New Hampshire, but in a more conservative family for sure. And I think like, you, you definitely do have to kind of get used to being uncomfortable or feeling like shifted to the side a bit. And then, you know, as you're kind of coming out, coming to terms with your identity, coming to understand yourself more because, you know, for me, the the biggest issue was like lack of language. Not that mm-hmm. like I didn't know that something was um, not what it was, but um, that I just really lacked the vocabulary to be like, Yep. That's it. Same. Uh, yeah. And Like also chronically ill. Um, you know, I've struggled with m- many, many variations of, um, physical and mental illnesses. Um, So like constantly explaining yourself, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like, yeah, no, I can't do that. Yeah. No, that that's not going to happen. No, I can't eat that, you know, like, and, and having to do the like, well, why, um, right. Or like, what is that? Or what, what are you or who are you? Or like, yeah, just like the tie-in of constantly, constantly, constantly having to explain your existence to others, whether it is about identity or illnesses or accommodations that are necessary. Um, Like either you kind of end up like being quiet and sitting on the sidelines or um, having to be your own advocate all the time.
3: Yeah, you learn to be basically a professional disabled person or a professional queer person. And I think that's like also something that's been integral to to my work. Um, yeah, like you doing that explaining over and over again, as much as it's a huge pain, um, it does make you really good at like getting your yes. pitch solid. And so you can apply yes. that to, <laughs> to other things as well. I, no, act- I, I, Yeah, I totally <laughs> I, hear where you're coming from. <laughs> I, I
2: recently had someone tell me that I was very determined because a lot of what I say is very repetitive, but it's because of um, lack of movement. Like, yes, I'm going to continue bringing this up. Um, not because I'm necessarily stubborn or you know whatever else, but because there hasn't been any change.
3: Right, you've given so, me no choice. Yes.
2: <laughs> like, I, I'm sure that you're tired of hearing this, but that's <laughs> too bad. That's not going to make <laughs> me stop. <laughs>
0: There's a reason queer and disabled people make great slam poets. And it's because we've spent so long crafting our words.
3: (laughs) Yes, that's so true. And, and to go back on what you were saying, Heather, like, the importance of having the language to describe this stuff is crucial. Like, I truly did not, I had never heard the word non-binary until like, college for many years years ago maybe yeah Yeah. and then I was like oh no is that me (laughs) and then I was like yes that is me I understand now and and I mean it's it's very similar with with disability and stuff too like there's so much that I wouldn't know I'm like uh terminally online um and much very much so in the uh disabled Twitter sphere (laughs) and that is like such a crucial community for like finding that shared language and those shared concepts I mean the concept of you know not to get too much into it but you know spoons and spoon theory look up spoon theory if you're not familiar very onto chronic illness uh invention um so yeah it's it's all it's all really um it's it's so critical to to be able to find community and find shared language through that.
2: Yes. I think a lot of that ties back into, I can't remember the um, name of the bill, but like the divisive.
3: Yeah. 544. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Like lack of, lack of representation in schools, organizations, nonprofits, whatever that might be getting federal or state funding, um, you know, locking it in so that you can't Discuss these topics is only going to increase these issues of, you know, lack of representation, lack of language. Um, oh, yeah, you know, and, and kind of putting folks, you know, perpetuating the cycle of folks like us who, you know, though we're incredible, didn't find um, what we needed until college or later. Um,
3: yeah, yeah, and yeah, I totally agreed. Totally agreed.
0: My question builds right off of that. Um, Jules, a minute ago you said, oh no, is that me? And I would love for you to expand on that because this is exactly what Heather is talking about right here with this divisive concepts bill. We are brushing the opportunity to educate kids about who they could potentially be and leaving them to feel this fear of, oh no, I don't fit in. I'm different. I'm divergent. Right. Mm -hmm. And so how have you taken, oh no, is that me into advocacy, into policy? Yay.
3: That's me. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) That's a great question. Um, so, oh my gosh. Yeah. So much of it is just like, reversing the conditioning of growing up in such a conservative place and I have to say like I mean I was very and I continue to be very lucky that my immediate family is very like supportive and you know it's taken them some time to kind of learn and come around um, to a lot of these concepts that are new for them Um, but on the whole they've been like very like once they understand what's going on, they're like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and so I don't know why I made my family sound like Owen Wilson there, but um, <laughs> that's that's what they all sound like, apparently. Wait, um, you're not
2: related to Owen Wilson?
3: Wow. Um, but I think... <laughs> um, so, yeah, I basically was... The first feeling that I had growing up and realizing that I was queer was like, oh, this is going to make my life difficult. And that was kind of the message that was being reinforced by everyone around me because I was watching, you know, my friends who were coming out being disowned by their families or not having access to, um, you know, the resources they needed to transition or to fully, you know, live authentically themselves. Um, And so it was always something that was associated with fear rather than pride. Um, And then I think what really the turnaround was for me was seeing other queer people, um, just like out in the world doing their thing. Um, and it comes back to that representation piece. Like if I hadn't seen like queer leaders, um, and, and been reading these like stories by queer people and taking in all of this beautiful art, um, you know, made by our community, I would not have known at all that this is like actually like, You know, it's it's not a bad thing, it's not a good thing, it's like a neutral thing. It's just like a part of who you are, and you can be proud of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, one thing in particular that I'll shout out for all you questioning teens out there, there's a great album by Joanna Sternberg, who is a non-binary artist. Uh, the album is called Then I Try Some More, and there's a song on there called Don't You Ever. Uh, and you know, this is gonna sound just like like super literal, but literally the uh, the, the stanza of that song that made me like realize that I was non-binary. It just says, never felt that I was a lady, never felt like a man. You're not the first to say I'm crazy. How could you understand? And I was like, Oh, that's me. And so like that representation was so critical and having somebody like, you know, out there making art and being so vulnerable and so open about their own experience, um, was really what I think made that mental shift happen for me.
0: That's incredible. So how has being part of the LGBTQ plus community supported your mental health? I feel like we always hear a lot about the negatives and the downside. Like you said, you were hearing about your friends being disowned or Mm -hmm. not having money to transition, but there's so many positives and there's many silver linings to being part of the LGBTQ community and I would love to get a little bit more insight.
3: Yeah, I mean I feel like the best example I'm like coming coming fresh off of being at Queen City Pride in Manchester last weekend. And I'm like not like a super like warm and fuzzy, sappy person, but I was like standing there like single tear coming down my face, (laughs) watching all of these like young, like teens walking around with their pride flags and like even like young kids like walking around pride with their parents and like I, I think the, the world is becoming more accepting. Um as much as there's still a lot that is wrong. Um, there's also so much more that's going right even from when you know we were kids. Um, and so that's definitely a, a a glimmer of hope that I try to hold on to. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know it's being, identifying as part of the LGBTQ plus community. And I use queer as an umbrella term. I know not everybody does, but that's just, that's my like catch-all um, is it's not just about gender or sexuality, right? It's having this shared experience. Like we were talking about before of kind of being like on the fringes um, and of, of knowing that you're different. And so it, it comes with a lot of connotations beyond just like what's in the dictionary definition of being part of that community Um, and I think that that has been such a saving grace for me um you know growing up and and figuring out who I am is just like talking to other queer people um a lot of whom are like a couple years older than me like maybe like have have it figured out a little bit more Um, that mentorship has been such an important aspect for me I mean honestly, I have to say, um, you know, the other person that you'll be chatting with on, on this two-parter series or whatever, however you're organizing it, Lynn's, has been a huge role model to me um, and really helped me be able to, um, you know, kind of be open about my identity in the world of New Hampshire politics. And same with Polana Belkin, who's another incredible trans activist, like the two of them really just showed me that, like, I can, like, be authentically who I am and do this work and, like, be, um, you know, it, it doesn't diminish or, like, I don't know, tarnish anything that I'm doing. Um, and, and people will still take me seriously. I just have to be, like, authentically myself. Um, and so, like, the two of them are just, like, the best. Shout out to Polana and Linz. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, that's a really beautiful thing. And, and as we kind of see more um, generations of, and even like people with just like a couple, you know, years of an age gap between them, um, being a longer timeline of people who are openly queer, um, I'm hoping that we'll see kind of that mentorship and that intergenerational support continue um, because I feel like, you know, the older folks have so much to learn um, from, you know, the younger folks um, who are coming up with this new vocabulary and figuring all of this new stuff out and and doing all this really amazing intersectional work um, kind of across social justice movements. And of course, the young folks have a lot to learn from the older folks about the history of our movement and, um, you know, kind of how we've organized over time. Um, and how to, uh, you know, safely and positively and authentically be yourself out in the world. Um, And so I think it's just a, I like, I think the best, one of the best things that's happened to me as I've grown up is I've stopped associating like the phrase LGBTQ plus with this like scary, (laughs) like unknown thing and started associating it with like, these are my people, this is my community. It makes me so happy and so proud.
2: I love to hear that Um, (laughs) and I relate to so much of it Um, and especially I work with a lot a lot of young folks who um, don't really feel like they're being heard a lot of the times or like their opinions are valued and I just I just want to say I really appreciate um you know, you mentioning that, like, yes, we have a lot to learn from younger folks. Like, there's there's so many ways that we can intertwine the generations and continue to grow together. Um, you know, it's not just a one sided like mentorship. Um, sorry, I just want to say I appreciate that.
3: <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's so true, and and it's that intergenerational learning is is so important.
0: So. To wrap things up could you just tell us one thing that has been like the biggest takeaway from your community organizing like if you could share one thing with the young folks in new hampshire what would you want them to know
3: um have a spreadsheet of your representative's email addresses saved yes. to your computer at all times. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Um, No, I think, you know, the most important thing that I can impart, and, you know, I'm still, like, I am by no means, like, a seasoned organizer. I'm still very much learning. I'm learning every day. I'm learning from people who are younger than me every day. Um, and so, the, I guess the most important thing I can say is just like always be open to learning. You're never going to know everything because the world around us is constantly changing. Um, people's needs are changing. The movements are changing. Um, what we are, you know, demanding from our government and from the people who represent us is changing. Um, and, and all of that is to say that, you know, you're, you're never going to have all of the answers. And so the two most like critical parts of being a good organizer, I think, are one, knowing where to find information, not necessarily knowing all of the information, but knowing how to do like a good Google search and and kind of like getting those research skills, which just takes time and and practice to develop that. And the other thing is just, um, you know, always being willing to say, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm wrong. And being wrong doesn't mean that you're stupid, it doesn't mean that you're less than, it doesn't mean that you're like a bad person, it means you were lacking a piece of information, be willing to learn that and to internalize it and to, um, you know, accept it with grace. I would say those are the, the most important things that I've learned thus far.
0: Well, thank you, Jules, for joining us today. It was absolutely wonderful to talk to you and you gave us a lot of really great insight. Um, Thank you for being so involved in the community and I hope that we get to see you around in the future.
3: Yes, thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. I'm such a fan of this podcast and I can't wait to listen to all of the other wonderful people that you have on.
2: (laughs) Awesome, thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the 603 Stories podcast, a monthly podcast made by young adults for young adults. You can check out 603 Stories on Facebook or Instagram or at our website, 603stories.org. Just a reminder, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline can be reached at 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. And the Crisis Text Line can be reached by texting to 741 741- 741 remember you can make connections get help and find hope through 603 stories